if you would all be so kind, and we'll start with you, Eli, and we'll just kind of work around in clockwise order. If you could tell me your name, who you work for, and anything else that you wish to share with the kind people listening to this podcast. Hi, yes, um, I'm Eli. My pronouns are they and them, and I'm a developer advocate at Scaleway, which is a small European cloud provider. We've got data centers all over Europe, all your all your dev tooling, all that good stuff. Um, and before that, I was developer advocate at a small tooling company, developer tooling company. And then before that, I've done a bunch of stuff, data engineering, um, started out writing C straight out of university. So spent some, some time in, in the trenches of uh, sort of real, real programming. Um, yeah, uh, I like knitting and Tolkien and hanging out with my cat and generally being paid to be a professional nerd. So that's that's me. Uh, hi everyone, my name is Abdel. Uh, that's my nickname actually. If you look me up on LinkedIn, you will find probably my long Arabic name, which a lot of people have difficulties with. So I just go by Abdel. It's easier for everyone. <laughs> I am a cloud developer advocate at Google. I've been at Google for almost 10 years now. So I'm a cloud developer advocate focused on Kubernetes and service mesh and pretty much anything containers. I co-host the Kubernetes podcast. Maybe some people here are, are listeners. If you have been listening since October, I am one of the annoying voices because we are two hosts of it, actually. Uh, the other host is my uh, colleague, Kathleen Fields, uh, who lives in Seattle. So, yeah, I do pretty much everything around containers uh, and Kubernetes. My upbringing is kind of weird because I did software engineering as a master's degree, but I never really worked as a software engineer. I worked in data centers, which is kind of a place where not that many people actually work, I guess. Um uh, my first job actually was in the data center back home in Morocco, and then I moved to Google uh, to join the data center in Belgium. And then, as I like to say, I've been moving up the stack in terms of abstraction layers. So all the way from hardcore servers to virtual machines to containers to whatever AI is going to bring in the next <laughs> 10 years. So, <laughs> so yeah, that's me. Awesome. Thank you. And Neil? I'm Neil, um, CEO and co-founder of Portainer. Uh, I like to describe myself as an engineer because to think otherwise would horrify me. Um, I have been 25 years building, breaking, and fixing things. Uh, VMware engineer, uh, IBM guy. Um, I dabbled a little bit with development. I, I am embarrassed to say it's Visual Basic, though. Um, so I don't know if, it's, if that's actually development or not. Um, but started out with Basic. So that, that also shows my age. Um, and I like to make things easy. I hate complexity. I think complexity is the root of all evil, and I like to make things easier for people. Um, that's just my natural-born hobby. Actual hobbies is, is fishing and hiking, for those that know me. So I love being outdoors. All right. Thank you very much. So this is the first episode of the Cloud Native Compass, and we're going to keep today's topics broad, as you're all aware. We're going to kind of take a look at a cross-section of the Cloud Native landscape, and that being cloud and containers and Kubernetes. So I prepared uh, three or four questions at each of those categories, but of course, Adrian, Anurag, and anyone else who wants to join, if you have any questions, please feel free to pop them into the chat. And if you really want to, feel free to raise your hand and we will promote you and invite you on to ask your question live. So we're going to start with the first question, which I know everyone's going to love because it's a topic that a lot of people find frustrating, but important, and that is the cost of cloud adoption. So. Based on my own experience of going to events over the last kind of 12 months, maybe broader, I see that the, the cost of their 
cloud instances or their hard, the software services that they're using on these cloud providers seems to be growing and growing and becoming more and more of a challenge, especially in the macroeconomic climate right now where costs are a big problem. So I'm curious if this is something that you're seeing with your own experience, your own customers, your own partners, and if you have any advice or best practices to help people navigate this tricky situation. I can have a comment. We have a lot of infrastructure in the cloud. It's actually our entire QA environment. Um, we obviously have to spin up uh, Docker standalone environments, Docker swarm environments, Noman environments, Kubernetes clusters of multiple different versions. So we, we, we support three versions back. And so every single time we release a new version of Portainer, we've got to spin up environments and test everything against it. So we've got we've got environments that come and go frequently throughout the day. So we, we might spin up a cluster as live for, for an hour while, while some QA testing is, and then it's pulled down again. And we do this across almost every cloud provider you can possibly imagine. We currently support six cloud providers that we test in QA against. So we've got, we've got instances everywhere. Um, that gives me a pretty good insight into how much money each provider costs for relatively the same thing. You know, because it's, it's always the same you know, environment that's stood up across the providers. And it's eye-watering how much money we spend. And one of the things that I've kind of figured out is if you have a relatively consistent workload, like the CPU and RAM allocation is consistent and you can right-size your environments, it's probably pretty good in the cloud. If you've got environments that are very, very bursty um, and you would be able to benefit from uh, from oversubscribing physical VMware hosts or Proxmox hosts, if you want to do things a bit cheaper, if you can benefit from oversubscribing and making sure that you can time slice, it's it's probably substantially cheaper. Um, we're actually going to be moving a lot of our workloads back from the cloud into a cloud bare metal as a service provider running virtualization. Um, and we think it's it's going to save us quite a bit of money um, in that in that landscape. So, you know, it definitely the cost differential between the top three and everyone else, I think, is still large. There's, there's a large gap. You, you pay a premium for the top three versus everyone else. Um, yet I think the capability gap is narrowed. You know, previously, if you if you if you wanted a really reliable service, you went to one of the top three. Um, and if you wanted something a bit more niche and more cost effective, you went to went to anyone else. Um, I think that's definitely narrowed out a lot now. Um, you get some very very reliable services from DigitalOcean, Linode, Sevo, you name them. You get some very very reliable services, super cost effectively now. So that's my my, my views on it. Anyone else like to add anything there? Well, my my flippant answer was going to be if you're on Amazon, then you can always hire the Duck Bill Group. Get Corey Quinn in to come and uh, chop down your bill, right? It does make sense to me, though, that making sure that you are buying exactly what you need is is a sort of is an answer might even be the best answer. Like that that feels right. I think Ellie beat me to it, but I, I was about to say there are people who built businesses on top of this idea of cost optimization, and Corey Quinn is probably <laughs> the best example of that. Right? They help people optimize costs, and I think there are few factors that that determine like how much you're going to spend in the cloud. And I'm, 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 I am in my line of work seeing more and more people kind of ca like caring about the cost. There is, if you have been to KubeCon in uh, Valencia last year, there is like an entire trend around uh, FinOps that have been starting around. And, you know, there are a bunch of boots of companies doing basically financial optimization for companies. Um, so there are a few factors. Um, 
one factor is is and this is something I've seen I've seen in my in my experience is that that people just turn things on and forget them right so just they go around to a cloud console they turn a feature on and they never look at it um, there is also what I call hidden costs sometimes you would turn a feature on I I don't know bunch of virtual machines but there is an underlying login um, that you are charged for but you don't see it you have to go dig into the documentation to understand how those logs are built. Um, I have had this before with Google Cloud, specifically customers coming to us and they go, well, our um, login bill is much higher than everything else we are spending money on, right? And that's because they're just writing logs and logs cost money. Um, and you can, you can basically anything that is a hidden feature that gets turned on automatically without you knowing, that could be a problem. Um, as Neil said, like the, 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 the margins between row compute across the three premium cloud providers is getting very narrow and the the other non-premium cloud providers if you want to call them so are getting also very close like digital ocean ovh um they are getting that they're starting to beat aws and google cloud on pricing right um and so what 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 i'm noticing on my end is a lot of what a lot of cloud providers are doing they are moving toward kind of more added value services all right let's instead of just selling you row compute we're going to give you like containers as a service um, so you don't have to worry about all the underlying complexity of the infrastructure. There is one comment I want to to, to add, and I'll just stop here. Um, I think when we talk about costs, a lot of times people like to compare apples to apples, where you say how much CPU memory costs me on-prem versus how much it costs me in a, in a cloud provider, and they tend to forget the cost of engineering, right? When you are paying Google Cloud to run your virtual machines, you're not only paying for that virtual machine, you're paying for all the engineering work that goes behind it that makes the service reliable. And of that engineering work, you will have to do it yourself it would, if you would host the VM yourself, right? So um, if you start thinking about your engineers as an investment center rather than a cost center, then then it's an entirely different discussion around cost optimization, right? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things there. One, you mentioned that there are products popping up now, and I think that's, that's very true. We're seeing Terraform integrations that try and tell you on a pull request what your plan or the changes to your, your infrastructure's code is actually going to cost you on a rolling monthly basis, which is interesting. There's things like KubeCost, which try to protect what a Helm chart can cost you when you deploy it to your cluster, which again is quite interesting. Um, and I think something else that was interesting there that you mentioned is like the, the understanding that you've got the operational cost versus the capital, oh, what is it, capital expenditure and operational expenditure. So as a company, you have to make the decision, do you want to own hardware and be an operator of hardware and provide a service? Or do you want to pay a little bit of a premium and just use one of these cloud providers. And I think these are a lot of challenges that people need to make. I was just going to say that, um, you know, owning your own hardware does come with its own operating costs as well, because who who's wearing that, um, who's wearing the pager? Uh, that's I mean, one of the things you get with the cloud provider, right? It's, it's not, not you. Definitely in a, a production environment. I, I know when I started writing dev or being a dev, like we had a cupboard. That had a rack in it that had four servers on it and that was dev and staging and qa and pre-prod and to be honest like it didn't really require much maintenance if anything went wrong you pulled the plug on it and turned it back on and, and it, well it was bare metal so 40 minutes later maybe you had a working machine again who knows but we're now in a situation that we're probably engineered for ourselves and that cloud native predominantly means microservices right and running microservices and a production lake environment even if it isn't production usually requires more than one machine with our model, if you could spin up a bare metal server and a cupboard, or even just some 
not a Raspberry Pi, but you know, you can stick some novelty hardware into a cupboard and deploy a binary to it. But with microservices, that's not really an option anymore. It's like we've engineered ourselves into this cost parity, which um, I'm sure there are pros and cons to. But what, what's people's thoughts there? Like, have we made this mess ourselves? Well, it, it's also just be careful you don't you don't uh, do binary alternates, right? So, yeah, like as, as I said, we're we're moving to uh, bare metal as a service and a cloud provider. So. We, 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 we get we get an entire server in a managed data center from a provider with high levels of SLA and internet connectivity and everything else. So we we, we just get an access, a console access to it. We can install VMware on it or Proxmox, whatever on it and, and start building our environment. So yes, we have to manage the hypervisor layer as a cost saving, but we're not worried about the data center or the server or any of the connectivity requirements of it. It's highly available. So the, the, there's actually a nice halfway house as well in between fully managed by, by a cloud yeah, you know, hardly managed by a cloud or self-hosted. And yeah, you know, I, I don't think I would ever even consider reverting back to fully self-hosted now. Um, it's just it's just too too hard now. You know, and there's there's no need. Um, but de- definitely being able to to have your own dedicated hardware, being able to overcommit that hardware at a ratio that that you're comfortable with, um, that makes sense for your business. Then then that. It, that, that's definitely a, a viable option to to save money, lots of money. Yeah, I mean, there's quite a, a public migration right now happening with Hey, the email company uh-huh. in Basecamp, where they're they've they've given up on the cloud and said it's too expensive, and they were citing costs. I think was it like three plus million per year to run their email service, and they've went all in and buying their own hardware and sticking it into a data center and managing that themselves. And I, you're right, I, I I could never imagine. Going back to that level of, of operational complexity, and I, I like the simplicity of cloud. I like the fact that we can burst up and burst down based on what's happening. I mean, do companies have predictable load to be able to do that? Like, it just doesn't seem like that's the case anymore. Well, I have, I have to say something about this whole uh, base camp and hay situation. I mean, all all respect to the person um, who wrote those articles. There is one thing I am not able to understand is at that scale, at $3 million per year, they have a very powerful negotiation power, right? They're not paying premium prices. They're not paying catalog prices, or they shouldn't be paying catalog prices at, at least, right? If you are a customer of a cloud provider who whose bill is $50,000, if you ring AWS or Google Cloud, they will tell you, they just go away, we don't care, right? But if you're paying $3 million per year, then you can sit down at the table. And I've seen customers negotiating up to 50, 60% discounts on their own computes by spending a couple of millions a year, right? So I, I, I read those articles. I could not understand why the cost was substantial and why they were complaining about it. Um, and also, I, if I was in their shoes, I would not consider going back to the uh, run my own server situation. And Neil said something interesting, like bare metal server is a thing and it's, it's kind of halfway between, you know, fully managed and so somehow half managed, I would say. So, so I, I don't, like the articles that you're referring to, they were doing kind of an Apple-to-Apple conversion. And that's what I always advocate against, right? Like, just look at the catalog prices of AWS and Google Cloud and, and Azure and say, like, oh, see, this is expensive. I can rent a VM for half that price. That's not the full story. <laughs> yeah, I do wonder if at Scaleway we will see more people coming back to, we have um, Elastic Metal servers. Uh, because historically, that's been just steady. There is steady, consistent demand for those. So it'll be interesting to see if more people adopt, you know, your your approach, Neil, of you know, mixing and matching and finding the right tools for the actual sort of more more well suited tools for each job. All right. Well, based on where this conversation is going, 
And based on what the next two questions are, I'm probably going to ask them both and just throw them out there and let you tackle whichever one you want to. You know, but the next question is, again, from going to conferences and speaking to people at the conference, I'm seeing a lot more people adopt cloud providers outside of the big three. Like, you know, we have Azure, we have AWS, and we have Google. But, you know, I think what a lot of people are agreeing with is that costs are cheaper when they go to the smaller cloud providers. They're also more targeted and seems to be able to innovate in a certain space faster than the major players. So that could be a driving factor there. And I want to kind of touch on that. But you also both, or all three of you mentioned, kind of hybrid architectures. And if I think back to early COVID and even before COVID, there was a lot of buzz and talks at KubeCon and other events where people were talking about hybrid cloud and multi-cloud. And I'm not seeing that anymore either. So I'm curious so you if you say that. <laughs> yeah, so maybe you can share some thoughts on are the smaller clouds at an advantage and are we going to see more adoption there? And is there a hybrid play, a multi-cloud play that is disappearing or maybe I'm just not seeing it anymore? Well, I'll do a tiny product pitch here, which is that Scaleway does run a multi-cloud Kubernetes managed service. Uh, so we have your control plane and everything lives on Scaleway hardware and architecture, and then you can put your nodes wherever you like. Um, so we are definitely... We're hoping that the multi-cloud isn't dying as a concept. Um, I think it's something that, you know, maybe it will never be mainstream, but there will be use cases for it. And I think it should be easier for people to do. Yeah, hybrid cloud, I think is, or multi-cloud, however you want to describe it there, I think is actually pretty important because it does let you have the right cost for the right application. Like, why would you want to run dev environments on the top three and pay a premium? if you don't need the high levels of service availability and everything else that comes with the top three that you just get and take for granted, if you don't need that for dev, test, QA, staging, what do you call it, what you like, then why would you run them there? You might, why not run them somewhere that, that's that's substantially cheaper? That's one of the great things about Kubernetes, right? It's this, this unifying layer. As long as you can deploy into Kubernetes, you can deploy anywhere and you're going to get relatively the same result. Now, I say, I say relatively because... You know, the, the, the cloud providers like to make you somewhat sticky. And so they're trying to encourage you to use their authentication and their logging and all their other stuff. And if, if you if, if you buy into that and go all in on Amazon's authentication, you know, I am everything else, then it makes it very difficult to then go and use any other cloud provider. So as long as you have some way of, you know, normalizing or, or neutralizing how, how you authenticate users in the clusters, how you handle RBAC, how you handle all of the policies and everything else, how you do all that and don't don't use it from just one one provider, then you can you can balance your loads and have have the right the right provider for the right workload. And I think that's that's key. Otherwise it makes it very difficult. That does require a pretty decent working knowledge of which provider would be the best for each workload. You know, if you if you're conceiving a project from scratch and you go, okay, I have this, I have this very high GPU usage that workload that needs to happen. Um, you know, there's there's if you don't already know off the top of your head where do you want to run that, that's mm -hmm. sort of that's research time, I suppose. But then that's you're saving money as a result. So, well, just 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 have two high cost, high SLA, low cost, lower SLA, and just just balance that way. Prod, non prod, yeah. just yeah, even start sure. even start something simple as that, right? I, I'm I'm gonna have to go a little bit against the flow of what's happening. So I, I understand all these points; they're all very valid points. But I think one of the problems I have with hybrid cloud and multi-cloud discussion is it tends actually to always focus on a single layer in a stack. Like uh, what Ilya and Nain mentioned, it they they just talked oh the Kubernetes you can do Kubernetes across the cloud because it's unified API. 
But in reality, no application lives in a vacuum. You need a database, you need storage, you need messaging queues, you need a bunch of extra things. You're not going to stick your app on AWS and put your database on Google Cloud. That doesn't make any sense, right? You're not going to put your your application on a container on DigitalOcean and have your Kafka running on AWS. That doesn't make any sense. So where where, where I see, this, this is, again, this is my own opinion. Um, where I see multi-cloud valuable are few of the following cases. Um, some of the following cases, this is from experience. First is location or availability of the service. There are certain industries where you are required by law to be in a certain physical location. And if your cloud provider doesn't have presence in that physical location, then you will have to choose another one. That's one valid use case for multi-cloud, right? Um, or maybe either physical location because regulations or because you want to be close to the user from a latency perspective, right? So that's would be one. Um, the second one is, you, you, you touch on this a little bit, is uh, added value services. Like if you want analytics tooling, probably Google Cloud is one of the best places where you can have like a, like a, like a data warehouse with BigQuery. So you go to the cloud provider because they have a service that they are the only one offering and they are doing it very well, right? Um, if you want cheap compute, you probably go to AWS because they have been doing that for a while. And they optimized even their costs to be able to offer VMs for cheaper than the other two. Um, if you want developer tooling, you go to, to Azure. They have a pretty good DevOps stack, um, which a lot of developers like, especially if you're in the .NET space, right? So that's another use case of multi-cloud, in my opinion. This, I would call it world where people want to run a single abstraction layer on top of six cloud providers and have a single API to talk to them and then have the app automatically move from one cloud provider to another because, you know, it's not that, like, that data center is down. That's just very hard in practice to actually implement, I would say. So I'm not dismissing that multi-cloud is valid. I just think that people think about it from a single layer perspective in the entire stack. And that's probably not the right way to do it, but that's just my opinion. I think you're all in more agreement than you probably realize because I think, Abdel, what you came at it from there is like the production use case where, you know, I don't want to manage my own stateful databases in production. So I am going to use like Cloud Spanner or Cloud SQL, et cetera. Um, but then I think Eli and Neil were more of the, let's slice our environments across clouds, like have dev and staging live somewhere else and not really speak. Like they're never going to use, I'm not going to pay for, for Cloud Spanner for my dev server or my staging server because the it's just not cost effective. Um, but I probably would stick it on Scaleway or Sivo or Linode or any of these other providers and maybe rely on Google Cloud for my production workloads because I do want to hook in to more of those value-added services. And I think that's actually probably a pretty good way for people to start leveraging cost savings by moving those lower priority environments or more ephemeral environments down um, other providers. Um, Plus, it gets them more familiar with the tooling as well. Maybe their infrastructure's code is going to improve because they've now written it in a modular fashion where it can be augmented with a different cloud provider at runtime. Who knows? Like Everybody's going to do something a little bit different. But I do think these were all in more or less agreement in some way there. We agree? Yeah, well, there, there, there are also <laughs> open source um, you know, alternates for almost all of the cloud provider services. So for non-prod, sure. you, you can actually stand up an entire Kube uh, manifest with you know your, your database layers, your 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 messaging layers, whatever else, and actually make it make it stateful. So you can do that. Um, would you do that for production? Yeah, probably not. You'd probably want that, that with a really high SLA, you know, specialist who knows how to run databases amazingly well. So, but yeah, yeah, we're seeing some really interesting stuff like CockroachDB with their serverless 
authoring. It's, it's really interesting. We've got Neon.Tech, which is doing like this managed serverless Postgres as well. Um, there's PlanetScale, who do Vitesse, MySQL, and a cloud environment. So like, if people are already storing their state in these other services and just using cloud providers for compute, maybe they have more flexibility to really understand and mitigate any cost explosion there too. So here is one interesting fact for you guys. I, I don't know if you've seen um, the, you, you're all aware of the last, uh, the, the, the registry migration, the artifact registry migration for Kubernetes that's happened over the last few months, right? Um, I've been, um, so we, we, we did like a, an episode on the podcast about that and we interviewed one of the software engineers who led that effort. And in researching that topic, I came across a, a document that was written by some people in the CNCF um, in which they analyzed, like they, they, they just uh, you know, highlighted what's the problem statement and how they're proposing to solve it. And in that problem statement phase, they said there was something around, they, they analyzed the traffic that was going toward the Google Container Registry, so k8s.gcr.io, the old one, and they realized that about 70% of the traffic going there was coming from AWS IP addresses. <laughs> so, so there are actually a lot of people on AWS that are standing. So these are not uh, EKS. It's not, it's not the AWS managed Kubernetes pulling from our container registry or from the, the K8S1, it's people standing their own Kubernetes cluster on top of AWS using tools like KubeADM or KubeSpray because KubeADM and KubeSpray uses the old registry to pull images from, right? And that was a very interesting like fact to learn. <laughs> it's like, okay, there are a bunch of people doing their own Kubernetes cluster on top of AWS, which is... Why would you? Why would why you? Would you? Exactly. so weird. <laughs> you already is. have the expertise, you want to be lower in the abstraction sort of offerings, I, I don't know. There must there must be significant use cases for it if they're seeing that much. Yeah, I run my own. Yeah. <laughs> and so actually the migration toward the new registry was driven by this because the, the, the project, the Kubernetes project used Google Cloud to host the artifacts and host the CICD pipelines, et cetera, et cetera. But they realized that out of the three, five million dollars that Google Cloud was giving them every year to pay for everything, they were paying 50% of it on egress costs. That's all the image pools going toward the different cloud provider, right? So the new registry, if you look at the details of the implementation, it's just a very simple proxy that forwards you toward either AWS or to Google Cloud based on where, where you're coming from. So they're actually hosting images in both cloud providers <laughs> so that they can cut, cut on the egress costs. That's so clever. That's mm. really funny. Yeah, I had no idea. Yeah, it's, 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 it was a very interesting, like, uh, like realization, like 70% egress cost going toward AWS, which was like, okay, sure, there are a bunch of people doing that. Well, I think this gives us a nice segue into our next topic, because you know, registries are expensive, and people that operate them may want to register costs, and a very notable company made some decisions lately that kind of angered the cloud-native community. And of course, I'm talking about Docker, who kind of made themselves a villain when they announced that they were deprecating, removing, deleting, whatever they were doing, the free plan, which meant that a lot of people who host their container images on the Docker Hub were told that within, was it 30 days or 90 days? I don't remember exactly. Their images were going to be deleted. Now, they've rescinded it. They've said, okay, we're, we're going to migrate people to open source programs and we're going to give, I think there is some sort of free plan now, but do we forgive them or have they broken their trust one too many times now? I think there's definitely going to be fear because if you can just change a service with only 30 days notice, what else can you change? It, it is the price for other services going to be 10 times this next week because they choose that they need to change it. So there's, there's definitely going to be fear as a result. 
um, you know, history often repeats. So if that is if that is becoming a behavioural trend to do these kind of things, then I think they'll be fair for what will happen again in the future. Um, most most providers have EULAs that say we actually reserve the right to change us at any time without without any warning, um, and that's part of their their standard agreement. So I think there's going to be fear. Um, I don't know whether there's much more impact. Like if you can think back when they changed the licensing for Docker Desktop, and there was a huge uproar on that. But yeah. they're making they're making millions from Docker Desktop licensing. So did it have that much of a negative effect on their business? Uh, the inverse, it had a massive positive effect on their business by making that change. So I don't, it, it, it's hard there. It, at the end of the day, if, you, if you're an open source entity, you have to be commercially viable to, to continue. They have yeah. to find ways to monetize. And, you know, could it, could it, could it have been uh, commed better? Absolutely. Um, I think this yeah. is where I struggle, right? You know, I think Docker changed the game for everybody in this community, right? We all have a lot of respect for Docker and the Founded team and what they've done. We want Docker to succeed. But like you said, it's not the first time they've violated our trust. Like, and, and they've done it so catastrophically through very poor communication, not really bringing people along with them with the change and saying, hey, this is why we're doing this thing and this is what we need to do to keep our business alive. They've just came out with the big delete hammer, the big sledgehammer and went, sorry, it's going away now. Um, you know, and the Docker desktop one was another one. We've seen so many alternatives pop up now from Rancher desktop to Podman desktop to Colima and all this other tooling trying to give people alternatives. Even recently, OrbStack released a product as well to kind of compete with this. So um, I, I don't know where I am on the trust radar here. I, I, I still want Docker to succeed, but I, I'm not pushing any more images to Docker Hub. Well, we, 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 just, we just pay the money and... Uh, a Docker verified publisher because you know we get immense value from their technology and it just feels like it's a moral obligation to to help them as a company succeed and grow and keep keep creating the technology that's that's changing the game you know everybody relies on the Moby project that's almost entirely funded you know by by Docker and that and the, and that dev effort it it just it just felt like the right thing to do um, it's interesting um I don't know if you saw Marantis when they started monetizing Lens. They, they they went through the same kind of thing that Docker did with desktop, and they also semi-surprised the industry and said, hey, by the way, you know how, how it's open source? Yeah, it's not really. The, the, the version we publish is actually our closed source version, so the license changed. And there's there's also equally, you know, strong backlash, and that's why now this open Lens came out of yep. came out of nowhere. So it, it's kind of, you've got to be super careful monetizing open source and do it, you know, very, very gracefully, gently, and transparently. I mean, is open core still a feasible business model for open source? That's what we are. I think there's different, there's ways and ways of doing open core, right? I mean, when, if you open source part of your, your business logic sort of thing, do you, do you accept pull requests from people outside of your organization or is it publishing sort of broadcasting rather than accepting uh, incoming contributions. Uh, so for us, for, for, for us, we actually accept PRs into our, our Portainer C version. Um, mm -hmm. we, we, we've got two, two code bases, Community Edition and Business Edition. Um, they're, they're, they're linked behind the scenes, but we accept PRs against the C Edition, and then we, we, we will ourselves backport it to Business Edition if we so want. Um, so, yeah, we absolutely do. Right. So And then if you so want, so there would be PRs in the Community Edition that are not present potentially in the business edition, 
do you then see those two things diverging? And at what point does what's open no longer match what's in the core, as it were? So I use so so if we so want there probably a little bit too openly. Everything is currently in CE is in business edition. Um, in the future, the reason I ask might... is because um, my previous company ran on the exact same model, but we didn't really find ourselves accepting PRs. Um, for the, I would for the accept course. I would accept PRs all day every day. Um, <laughs> it, it it makes the product better, um, and and why why would I not? If if someone raises a PR against our open source product that competes against the business product, I'd still I'd, I'd still consider it and accept it. All I'd say is then obviously there's not enough value add for that particular feature in the business edition and we, we, need, to, we need to be more creative and come up with, with, with a new value add. Um, I think that's what makes a very healthy open source variant is that you don't make it a walled garden and close and you control it. It, it has to be open. Um, if it's not open, then it's, it's, it is an open source. I, I would agree, yeah. I think that this whole Docker mishandling communication in the last one and it have happened a couple of times and it happened to other companies redis was one of them when they changed the licensing a few years back it happened to a bunch of other companies it's always reminds me of these quotes of like this is why we cannot have nice things <laughs> it just that basically as a community we are entitled to free stuff we just think that whatever we use is free and should remain free forever right mm-hmm. um and when a business goes like, oh, no, 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 folks, this is not going to be free because you have to make money on this. We are paying people and offices and, you know, engineers and everything like that. Then everybody goes goes crazy and forget the fact that, well, you're probably using stuff for free and you're probably not even contributing to them, right? So it's a very hard thing to balance, like, 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 like balancing open source with commercial is very difficult. I think that the last one, the last Docker announcement was probably more a case of mishandling communication than anything else, right? One of the things I was thinking about as that whole situation was kind of unfolding is as a community, if we think that there are a bunch of stuff, containers, for example, that are important, like one of the person who was very vocal about the Docker change was Alexi, the OpenFast founder. He wrote like a bunch of articles about it, etc. And for me, I was thinking like, why don't we as a community use the same model of the CNCF in terms of open governance and decide, okay, all these open source projects that are important enough for everybody will be hosted by an independent entity and paid for by everybody, right? So why don't we have a CNCF equivalent or CNCF themselves that manage and runs a version of Docker Hub that is free to use for everybody who wants to use it, but somehow everybody have to contribute to it either financially or through through your code contributions, right? Um, and this is probably a far-fetched idea. It will take time to unfold, and I, I'm not sure even it will happen. But I just we tend to forget that relying on a single provider is never a good idea anyway, right? I, I can give you an example actually of a project I worked on, which was even funnier than this. I'm gonna uh, okay. So there is a database called Iro Irospace Irospace something like that. It's like an in-memory database, uh, very popular. Um, that one of my customers was using, and they were using a version of it which has a commercial license, but the free edition allows you to run up to like 32 nodes cluster, right? And you combine them in a single you know cluster. And the company behind came up with the new version, and they said, okay, in the new version the open source edition, you can only run four nodes clusters. And if you want to run more than four nodes, then you have to pay for it. The, that company, that customer I was working with, they were already running at max. They were already running 32 nodes. And what's even worse is that that company said, okay, we're releasing version four and three months from now, we're deleting the binaries for version three from our repositories. 
So my customer ended up dumping the binaries for version three and putting them in a Dropbox. So they guarantee they cannot, they, they have the binaries going forward, right? So it's, I don't know, it's very difficult. I, I also don't know how to feel about this whole thing. I just feel you are breaching the trust of your community when you do a sudden change and you don't communicate it properly. And, and you don't communicate the intent behind it, which is very important, right? Yeah, I think when you're having these difficult discussions, you always have to start with why the decision has been made. Yeah. And I don't think Docker did that. Like if they turn around and says, we will not be in business in 12, 24, 36 months because here's the costs of running Docker's hubs free tier and it's not feasible. People would go, oh, all right, okay, we didn't, oh, that's that much. And maybe they'd have a bit more empathy for the company. But the communication didn't come across that way. And also, we're a very entitled bunch, right, developers? Oh, you gave me this thing for free? Oh, cool, I'll, I'll use it, I'll use it, I'll use it, I'll use it. Oh, you're taking it away, I hate you so much. I mean, like, and I'm seeing lots of people move to GHCR. Like, GitHub's container registry seems to just become in the new default because it's where all our code lives. But... How long the are they going to run that we, for free? <laughs> exactly. Do we have a guarantee that Microsoft, 10 years from now, they're going to go like, okay, GitHub container registry is not free anymore, right? And we're back yeah. to, uh, you know, have a server in your basement and serve, serve all your own containers images yourself, I guess. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> all right. Let's, let's say something positive about Docker. <laughs> um, I was really excited by their WASM announcements recently. Um, I love that they're opening up hybrid architectures with WebAssembly and containers side by side. And the fact that I can do this with kind of Docker image pool and OCI artifacts, but not only that, they announced support for Docker Compose, where I can run WebAssembly binaries as services, speaking to a Postgres database running in a container, and everything works together cohesively. And I think this is really exciting for WebAssembly and for Docker. So I'm curious if anyone has any any thoughts. If they played with it, did they like it? Did they not like it? Feel free to share. So for edge use cases, I think it's I think it's quite amazing. The um, there's still a real problem at the true edge, and I'm talking around the uh, industrial edge, where you've got micro micro devices, which are you know they they are they are computers. They have an ARM 32 CPU. They've got a gig of RAM and really your only choice today for running containers at that type of edge device is Docker. Everyone, everyone talks a great story about Kubernetes at the edge. Mm, not at that edge. Um, not, no, nowhere near. Um, and so if your only option is to run full fat containers on that device, still a, a, a slow ARM32 CPU and one gig of RAM only goes so far. And so the more efficiency that you can you can get out of it, uh, the the faster I think we're going to see the adoption of things like Industry Four, because you know industry invests in technology and they, they expect that technology to last ten plus years. They're not going to go refresh their entire you know hardware estate overnight because there's they they want to do containers. They want to find a way to repurpose what's there and it's old and slow. So I think Wasm at that edge is going to be amazing because it, get, it lets you get so much more efficiency or it's so much more efficient way of delivering applications at that edge. In the, in the data center, I'm, I'm not convinced, but... That's, that's an interesting take. I think I, I, see, I see actually there is quite a lot of movement across the major cloud providers to start supporting Wasm for serverless um, stuff. <laughs> so Wasm as functions or Wasm as, you know, for container service type platforms. Um, 
which you can do today, I guess, like with the with the Docker support for Wasm, you could basically write a Wasm module and run it inside Docker container. And if your cloud provider allows you to run Docker containers on top of the platform, <clears throat> it would just work, right? I think for functions, I see a value, especially that basically Wasm programs or binaries are very fast to start. And for specific, specifically functions as service, that have always been a problem, the startup time or the cold start time or whatever you want to call it, right? Um, so if Wasm can solve that by giving you a fast to start binary, that's probably a good place for it to be, right? Um, but but yes, I, I think I have to agree with you in the sense that I don't see it as something where five, five years from now, everybody will say, okay, right, we're just going to rewrite all our apps in Wasm. <laughs> that's probably not going to happen. <laughs> so... The other one probably is this, the sandboxing aspect of Wasm is a very compelling feature to a lot of companies that allow you to run third-party code on their platform, like cloud providers with functions and stuff like that, right? Like, as a cloud provider, you should inherently not trust people shipping code and running it on top of your infrastructure. And the more you can sandbox that code away from other customers running on the same host, the better it is. And Wasm has a very good sandboxing um, environment, right? So yeah, that's that's my take on it. I, I think it's gonna. It, we'll have to wait. This this is gonna be. This is gonna unfold over the next five to ten years. Yeah, I, I want to quantify some of the things you mentioned there. So um, Cloudflare announced uh, their workers project, which is their um, functions as a serverless serverless kind of workload thing, supports WebAssembly workloads. They announced that like two weeks ago, which is cool. And they have two hundred and fifty six edge locations. I know Neil's going to be like, that's not edge, but you know they they have these locations out there. Um, for people to run these workloads. And as far as quantifying it, um, WebAssembly runtimes, binaries, can be started in microseconds compared to like a container, which we're talking, what, 500 milliseconds probably to start a container, set the sandbox up, especially in a Kubernetes environment, it's a little bit slower. Um, I think that's quite interesting. But, but there's also the data aspect. It's like with uh, container runtimes, you have to pull the image. And container images are not small, right? Yes, we have container images on the megs, but... We've all seen them, tens of megs, hundreds of megs, and even gigs of container images. So even the pool time on that can be slow. Whereas WebAssembly binaries, again, are very, very small, typically four to eight meg, depending on the complexity of the application. Of course, your mileage may vary. I'm not saying all of them are. Um, but I think at those numbers, that is a really compelling story for developers who want to do things that way and then the sandbox is just a kind of cherry on the top right it's like you get all of those benefits without having to deal with linux c groups without having to worry about the architecture of the application yeah go cross compiles but am i cross compiling for arms am i cross compiling for x86 like these are all concerns that i hope we don't need to worry about um, and i i do actually agree i don't think we're all going to be writing WebAssembly in five years but i do think we'll be writing a mix of WebAssembly complemented with container-based workloads. Another another space where I am seeing WebAssembly also growing very fast is um, I don't know how much you are familiar with Envoy, the the proxy. Mm -hmm. um, Envoy supports WebAssembly as as a filter, so you can Envoy is a very extendable proxy, and you can like add filters to it, and those filters can be written in Lua or in WebAssembly, right? And with that, you can actually implement a lot of complex logic. At the filter level, so you can do authentication, authorization, and a bunch of extra things, uh, rate limiting, for example, um, stuff like that. And Envoy, although it started with Lyft, it is being adopted. Um, we are changing all our load balancers to be Envoy based at Google. I, I know at least um, one company, Spotify. I know that they, they are running Envoy as their edge proxy, and they're not doing WebAssembly today, but they're thinking about it. So 
um, and I think probably Neil would not agree with, with this. I, I still think this is an edge case where you're running a proxy at the edge of your network and pushing a bunch of that logic that you're doing in the backend to the proxy layer. Um, you know, SSL termination is the something we've been doing for a while, but like authentication authorization, blah, blah, closer to the user um, is, is, is of value, right? And I think the reason why Envoy and Wasm are becoming interesting is because all the other proxies that existed for a while have not been innovating that much. Like Nginx did not change much in the last 10, 15 years. HA proxy did not change much in the last 10, 15 years, right? They probably support HTTP2, but like who cares, right? <laughs> so, so, so yeah, I, I, I see that as another kind of area that would be interesting to look at or to keep an eye on. Yeah, I think WebAssembly as an extensibility model is definitely on a rise too. Like you said, with with Envoy, um, Red Panda has like a built-in WebAssembly runtime for doing stream transformations on events going into the system. And there's a really cool framework that I don't remember the name and I'm not going to remember it, but it's like a desktop extension model. So if you write desktop apps, you can now write WebAssembly modules that get hooked into it and it makes it run on Mac, Linux, and Windows without having to worry about anything else. I think that's quite an interesting use case too. All right, we are very quickly running out of time. So unless anybody would like to share more on WebAssembly, I'm going to suggest that we move on to our final topic for today, which is Kubernetes. Uh, any last words on WebAssembly? Kubernetes it is. <laughs> <laughs> All right, awesome. Well, I'll throw this one over to you, Abdel, since you've already mentioned it. But very recently, the register change as part of Kubernetes is a, a big deal. People need to know. Well, I guess it's not as important anymore because of the automatic redirect, but there's still things people need to know. So maybe you could share a little bit on what's happening and what's important for people to take away. Yeah, so a little bit of context. Um, Kubernetes was up to 1.26, which was released December last year. They were pushing all their images to k8s.gcr.io. So GCR stands for Google Container, uh, Container Registry, which is a Google managed version of Docker Hub, essentially, uh, or Docker Registry. And um, k8s.gcr.io was a subdomain that Google created specifically for Kubernetes, right? Um, it was kind of like its own instance. It did not share infrastructure with the rest of the container registry space. Um, so they created like a subdomain and they just give it to the community and, you know, and then, you know, I talked about this earlier, they realized they were running out of money because, you know, spending way too much money on egress. So they decided to do the migration and the migration today, or the migration essentially was, we're going to move from k8s.registry.io toward registry.kubernetes.k8s.io, which is essentially, um, if you care about the implementation detail, it's a proxy running on top of Cloud Run, which does the redirection. It's a very low, low, um, a low weight Go binary, the code is open source, you can read it. And essentially what it does, it receives the request, it looks at the IP address and it uses a Go package, which 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 can give you the list of known IP addresses that AWS use. So if your traffic is coming, if the request is coming from AWS, it forwards toward the container registry of AWS, right? So the images are still technically mirrored across both Google Cloud and AWS. And maybe they are planning to add more cloud, cloud providers later. What happened basically is AWS came to the Kubernetes community and they said, we're going to give you money to be able to host stuff on AWS, right? And maybe later more, more cloud providers will chime in and they will be able to do the same. But essentially now when, when Kubernetes is built, they will push all the artifacts toward all the cloud providers. They're mirroring them on Google Cloud and AWS and maybe Azure in the future. And then this proxy, this little Go binary, 
just forwards depends on which the IP, where the IP is coming from, right? And that's gonna help a lot with pool time. So if you're on AWS and you're pulling for the new container registry, you will see a significant improvement in terms of the pool, pool speed, right? And yeah, it just reduce the cost on a single cloud provider and kind of distribute it across multiple cloud providers. So that's the context. Do you know and what that is? That's multi-cloud. That's multi-cloud. Yeah, that's actually a very valid point. <laughs> I, was waiting, <laughs> I was waiting for somebody to make a comment. <laughs> and, and actually, you know what it is, to be honest with you? It's basically what we used to do with Linux packages, just mirroring Linux packages across multiple servers, right? It used to be a long time. I, I When I was living in Morocco, I did establish a mirror for APT. In Morocco, I bought a bunch of servers, and we established we 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 set up, set up a mirror for APT packages, and that's essentially what this is. Except it's done by the community, not by a bunch of volunteers, right? How how is it not just a CDN? It is I'm a CDN. Surprised. It is exactly. pretty much a CDN. So, so I'm yeah. I'm surprised that that Google just just didn't host all the images on a CDN. Well, I think that the reason is because containers require a very specific implementation of the registry itself, right? The registry API is very specific. Um, it's not like it's not like an, a, a picture or like a CSS mm-hmm. file that can just put on an HTTP server. That's due to the client implementation of the Kubelet on Kubernetes, because the Kubelet is not just doing an HTTP pull request. It's using the the Docker registry client library to pull the image, right? But I would agree with you if if it was if images could be pulled through a standard HTTP request, then what's, what, why are we bothering with this? We could just implement it yeah. on top of like a CDN, right? All right. Well, thank you for sharing all that. So we've got a couple of questions left. So Adrian, everyone else in the chat, if you want to ask any questions before we finish, drop them into the comments and we'll move on to developer portals. So a trend that I've seen through reviewing CFPs for a couple of conferences and again, speaking to people at conferences is that Backstage has really kicked off this new, I don't want to use the word movement, but you know, this initiative where teams feel like they need to have developer portals that give them a gateway into their infrastructure, their services, their projects. Like, and I'm curious, is this something that users are seeing again with your own customers and partners? Do you use yourself? And what is the value proposition that people are looking for here? Is it purely developer experience or is it something else that I'm missing? I'm still unclear on the difference between a developer portal and like a console view for your what you're doing with your cloud provider. Is this for things that you've got on on site or what sort of agnostic to where the things are actually running or? Yeah, so the Backspeech is an example. It's kind of used to give you like a service catalog. So as a developer team deploying microservices, it'll actually show you the all the services, how they interact with each other, the message mm-hmm. formats, uh, visual overviews. And um, we're seeing extensions now where it can hook into Kubernetes and give you some limited capabilities there. It can hook in to your cloud provider and show you IAM models and RBAC rails and a whole bunch of other stuff. So gotcha. we're, we're seeing this kind of DX-based portal experience trying to make developer teams more efficient. I'm not sure if that's the value add, but yeah, Neil, you were going to say something there too. Yeah, I was going to say, as, as Kubernetes or containers get more and more and more mainstream, you're getting into the realm of web devs, front-end developers. In all honesty, those people who who know how to use, those developers who know how to how to deploy and manage applications on Kubernetes are probably full stack, and now, now they're extra full stack in order to be able to do that as well. But there is a huge proportion of the developer community who probably see themselves as front-end devs or web devs, and they, they may or may not have the skills to be able to do infrastructure tasks. And so... There is definitely a need for an abstraction where you say, I just want to take my code and I, and I want to deploy my code, off you go. And 
that's where I think these kind of dev platforms will shine is is being able to engage with the dev in a language the dev speaks, which is which is code, and being able to to, to get them and and or have a bunch of pre canned templates available they can just click to deploy and they get their server up they can then go and and push their code into. I I think it's critical uh, as as we get more mainstream we get into more emerging markets where where the level where there might be more more of a skills delta. Um, I think it's I think I think it's just a just a, a sign of maturity of Kubernetes. All right. Can we try an experiment? Are there you happy to try an experiment? You smile. I'll take it. All right. There was a report recently that said GitHub just crossed a hundred million monthly active users. So let's pretend that this is science and there's a hundred million developers out there in the world. So in the chat box, and don't hit return until I ask us all to hit return. Type how many developers you think have used a kube control command. And the audience can feel free to do this too. So don't hit return. Yeah, but just type a number. And I'm, I'm going to count to three. And on three, we can all hit return. I can't even find the chat box. <laughs> At the bottom, there should be, like, there's a timer saying we've been live for 56, 58 minutes. And then there's a little square oh, for see. chat. So in the chat box, type a number of how many developers out of the 100 million have used a cube control command and we'll all hit return at the same time. Has everyone got a number? I do. All right, so on three. One, two, three. Wow, we all went very different. <laughs> <laughs> so I said 500,000, Eli's 5,000, Neil went in at 10 mil, and Abdul saying every developer has run a cube control command. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, we'll never know, but it, I, I just, you know, KubeCon has 10,000, a sellout event at 10,000 people going to, to Amsterdam. As a general rule of thumb, when I talk about developers that go to user groups and conferences, I always say, if you go to these things, then you're in like a 5 to 10% bubble of people that really want to push their knowledge and their careers and, and other things. But I've always made that number up, so I, I really have no idea. Um, right, so I'm yeah. extremely low because I think, well... I don't know. We're, the practitioners of a thing always think the thing is more widespread than it actually is. How many people on GitHub are just using it to host like little personal website that they'd made or But now you're Euler. claiming that 50% of the attendees at KubeCon have never run a Kube control command. <laughs> yeah. But if we're doing but prices right, we might be right. Yeah. I mean, probably. I don't know. We could sample it when I'm there. Maybe I'll just run around with a pen and paper and say, have you run a cube control command and see how many people I can get to answer it? I guess I guess that probably you are right in the sense that there are people, there are probably people using Kubernetes without running the cube control command, right? Like the dashboard, if you deploy the Kubernetes dashboard, you don't need the command line. You can just deploy things from the dashboard. So there are probably people who are using Kubernetes, but they're not using the command line. They're just using some sort of high-level abstraction layer. But is Kubernetes still not... I mean, it's growing. We can see that through the CNCF. We can see that through projects, open source contributions, through people at conferences. But it's it's still niche, right? Like arbitrary number. Ninety percent of people that write code are probably deploying to something that's not Kubernetes. Still, is that right? Is that wrong? Kubernetes, maybe containers. I would say is more mainstream. Um, I just just this last weekend, I was walking down a random street in Berlin, um, and there was you know those big digital signboards. Um, and so we're walking down the street and there's there's 20 digital signboards in a row, each selling. And as I walk past one, I'm like, oh, my God, that's that's Docker Desktop. And it, and basically the, the signboard had crashed and in the screen was Docker Desktop um, with with the, the, the stack for the software. It's crashed. And so and I'm like, 
Okay, cool. You just never know where where you're gonna where you're actually gonna gonna come across containers. Um, so I think I think in, I think containers have far more adoption than Kubernetes, um, but Kubernetes adoption is definitely is definitely rising. Yeah, I'd be curious to pay attention. You know, GitHub and Stack Overflow do annual reports where they ask a whole bunch of questions, and I haven't checked, so I don't know. But maybe containers and Kubernetes adoption is in there, and there are numbers. So I'll see if I can find them and, and share them with people afterwards. But fun experiment to see. This is complete for wildly different guesses. But I'll I'd be very interested to see the results if you do a straw poll of running around KubeCon and asking people, have you actually run Kube Control? I mean, of course I'm going to do it. I'm going to film it at the oh. same time. So yeah, it's Fantastic. going to happen. <laughs> to, to be honest, uh, asking it in an echo chamber, um, you, you, you might get a very different result than across a more broad spectrum sample. So if you go, I, I, go to I, I an actual a... dev forum. <laughs> Yeah, I was about to say that. I think it would be more more interesting to to go to a conference which is not cloud native focused. Uh, so one of the conferences I want to go to next year is called Scale, South California Linux Expo. Um, it takes place in Sacramento, I think, every year. And um, my co-host was there and interviewed some people for the podcast. And the, from the interviews I listened to, there was like a widely different spectrum of what people are interested in, right? Um, it's like a totally different population. They are not in containers. They're, like some of them, they say, ah, oh, we heard about this thing called Kubernetes and we're thinking about looking at it, but they're still in, you know, hardcore Linux, low-level kernel stuff. Um, so, and there is there is actually an article uh, that I read a long time ago. I have to find, dig it up and find it. Um, I think it was called Shadow Developers. And it was, I don't even remember who wrote it. It was this this person who said like, like we people who are on the internet, we're only exposed to a, certain population of developers there are a bunch of like your developers sitting in a like a uh, like a town hall of a city of i don't know canterbury in the uk writing visual basic code on top of you know <laughs> of like oh, yeah. microsoft access databases that's a developer as well right are mm-hmm. they gonna fill in a stack overflow survey probably not are they gonna to go to a conference probably not <laughs> yeah i mean it's, so... it's something we come up against in devrel right it's like you can only reach the people who are who you know about and then there's all this yes. sort of yeah, like like dark matter. Where are all the people who aren't on the internet, who aren't terminally online? All right. We have, have gone a little bit over. I just want to check. Does anyone have a hard stop? Or are you okay to answer one more question and we'll finish up for today? I'm, I'm good to go. I'm good okay. to keep going. Rather. Well, I think... I keep going as well. Yeah. I mean, I think given everything that we see on Twitter these days with open API, open AI and chat GPT, that we should talk about the way that that may influence our little niche Kubernetes and Docker and container bubble and the way that we work. And specifically calling out Alex Jones from Canonical's project of KHJPT, which hooks into like the Kubernetes event log and audit log to tell you when things are wrong in your cluster and tell you how to remediate them. Is this something we're going to see more of? And is it going to take all our jobs? Which is hyperbole. It's seriously awesome. It's it's. It's very, very cool. Yeah, triaging is one of the one of the things that and, and let's be honest, ninety percent of us see an error, copy paste it into Stack Overflow and, <laughs> and look for the answer anyway. So that, that this is just, just automating that loop. Yeah. I like that we've now got to the stage where we've written software so complex that we need to write mm-hmm. more software to understand it. You know, we 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 are you know, I don't think that our jobs are at risk because you ask Chat GPT anything about, you know, real facts and it spews you complete nonsense, but it's certain tasks like that. I think it could be really, really useful. So, I, 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 I also say that um, whilst it still has quite a lag in its training, 
if you ask it questions about Kubernetes 1.26, do you think it's going to be able to help you? It, maybe no. not, yeah, because it, it's, <laughs> it's got that cutoff. So it, it, as long as it's a bug that existed back when it was trained, it'll help you. I'm just, I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm, I'm not that smart enough to understand you know, if, if it can yeah. determine things that, it, that that's newer, bugs that are newer than what it was trained on. I don't know how it handles. So you have to give it all the context. That's what I, I've seen is that people are, are feeding it uh, 126 manifests as examples and then asking the questions based on it. And it does seem to have a weird ability to understand what's happening and answer questions. Like it, it, it could be retrained with modern data if you're willing to give it the modern data. Do you think this is something you would hook into retainer? Uh, I am all about uh, making things easier for our users. So if this was a way to make things easier, um, we actually had a discussion. Um, we, we used to include Compose with a K in Portainer. So you, you could take a Docker Compose file and we, we would auto-deploy that against Kubernetes. We had, we had to pull it out because it was full of CVEs. Um, <laughs> if this was a way to bring back that type of capability where someone could could put a, put you know give Portainer a Compose file, we, we asked ChatGBT to convert it and then it gave us back a manifest that we could then go direct deploy. <laughs> I'll take that. Would that would be cool. Yeah, that would be cool. cool. So, so yeah. absolutely, if, if if we can do, if we can use it to improve the service that we deliver to our users, I'm all over it. Yeah, I also wonder, like from the Google and Scaleway point of view, can we like have it have an understanding of all the resources we have, and then give us cost optimizations, or even just remind you that you've had an instance running that you're not using anymore? Like, hey, the traffic on this virtual machine hasn't really moved a needle in ten days. Do you want to shut it down? Like, are we going to see more stuff what? like this? Our, our most of our recommendation tips that we have in the Google Cloud Console are actually ML based. They're not BART based. They're not based on ChatGPT. Like right now, if you log into the Google Cloud Console, there will be some recommendation in your virtual machine interface to say, "Hey, you haven't used this virtual machine for a while." Oh wow! Um, so that's actually ML based. And another way, another place where we are using a machine learning based model is we have a software called Cloud Armor, which is like a web application firewall. It's a WAC, so you can attach it to a cloud load balancer and then. It can do a bunch of things like XSS, uh, like a cross-site scripting uh, detection, SQL injection, etc. But one of the things it does is something called uh, predictive traffic analysis. So basically, when you turn that on, it creates a base model for your uh, traffic on your load balancer. And if it sees something weird, it can actually notify you and say, hey, we're seeing these IP addresses are potentially going to be harmful. And you can turn it on to either create a firewall rule to block those IP addresses automatically or just give you a recommendation and tell you, please apply this policy to block those IP addresses. And last year, that feature was used by one of the customers and it helped them block the largest DDoS attack known to human in history to like 70, uh, 47 million requests or something like that. Um, so they didn't, they didn't have the automatic feature, they just had the recommendation feature. But somebody caught that early and managed to apply the policy to, you know, to prevent issues. So in these kind of cases, I do see um, value for using machine learning based, whether they are GPT or BART or something else, but something that could, that is clever enough to see what your base usage is and can detect deviations, right? But this is not new to ChatGPT. This is like deviation detection in machine learning is a very old problem, right? So ChatGPT as is today um, being useful for, for us with what we do today, I'm very skeptical, but that's just me. Yeah, I sort of think of ChatGPT as it's almost like a toy or like a demo of like the under the technology, the ML technology in targeted ways, like exactly as you say, like very specific targeted ways that's trained for this one purpose, I think have an enormous potential. 
Um, I'm thinking about like observability, like price prediction, all of these things, but it may not be like chat GPT in particular, it may be something more specifically purpose built. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you all for joining. Um, it's been a pleasure talking with you all. Um, I'll give you all a, a minute if you just want to plug anything, share anything, anything that that may be, feel free to do that now. And then uh, we'll wrap this up. I don't want to plug Fortana <laughs> at all. That just seems that that uh, that, that seems seems shallow. But um, <laughs> so no, I I I think I think the more people that get exposed to to containers and Kubernetes and realize that not everyone needs to be an expert, the better. Um, I think I think there are varying levels of skill required, um, and I think we need to be completely comfortable that those in, out there in the ecosystem have varying level, varying levels of skill and embrace them and and have tools and capabilities that that help chat you know the the, the chat gpt conversation just then as a prime example it, it helps those you know under skilled do things that their more skilled peers might be able to do um so in, anything anything that helps people you know increase the skill level um is it is a good thing i'm gonna do a shameless plug and ask people to go listen to the kubernetes podcast we had david on it that was the last episode uh it was pretty cool to talk to to to, to you but we have a bunch of stuff coming up, very interesting things. We're going to be covering platform engineering and backstage is one of the topics. We're going to be covering Docker and Wasm as well. And we're going to be also covering KubeCon uh, Amsterdam. So we're going to be asking people, just harassing people in the show, asking them like how it's going on. Uh, so it's KubernetesPodcast.com where you can follow us on Twitter. And uh, yeah, thank you for having me. It was fantastic. I suppose my plug would be um, my, my team at Scaleway, the developer relations team. We do We do some live streams. Almost every Friday, not this, not this one coming, but um, almost every Friday at 3 p.m. UK time, we go live and chit chat about the cloud. Sometimes we have guests. We just did a bunch of Kubernetes focus streams uh, during March. So you know, if this, if that's your jam, come and come and hang out with us. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Scaleway underscore Devs, and we always tweet when we're going live. It'll be really good to have folks come and harass us on stream. Cool. All right. Awesome.